Thank you, President Keller, and thank you for that uh, wonderful choir and Pastor Tim for your very thoughtful uh, prayer, particularly reminding us that our country's in desperate need of Jesus Christ, which we all believe. And I'm very appreciative to be here with my wife and with uh, fellow patriots and believers in Jesus Christ and a loving Heavenly Father and uh, with so many friends that we have both from Arizona and from our hometown in Glendale. Uh, there's nothing like family and friends in this wonderful country in which we live. And from St. John's. And from St. John's, my wife said where she's from. <laughs> if you heard of that, you should be a mapist or geography or something. <laughs> and I've met a lot who play racquetball. I love to play racquetball. I just finished playing in the Senior Olympics and I broke my arm in four places and have been going to physical therapists and I've now learned the difference between a physical therapist and a terrorist. <laughs> I mean, a, uh, <clears throat> that's what a physical therapist is, I think. Well, the difference between a physical therapist and a terrorist is you can negotiate with the terrorists. That's the difference. <laughs> Well, tonight I'd like to discuss with you a key question. Did the Founding Fathers coincidentally appear on the scene at the same time, or alternatively, were they purposefully raised up by God to establish a nation whose origin and destiny would and should be directed by His hand? Unfortunately, it's become academically in vogue to denigrate many of our Founding Fathers. Undoubtedly, they had imperfections, as do all men. But nonetheless, they were chosen instruments in God's hands. God had the eternal perspective to see beyond their weaknesses and instead capitalize on their integrity and incredible strengths. He could see the masterpiece beyond the few flawed strokes. Some years later, in a general conference of the church, President Wilford Woodruff testified he said, I'm going to bear my testimony to this assembly if I never do it again in my life, that those men who laid the foundation of this American government and signed the Declaration of Independence were the best spirits the God of heaven could find on the face of the earth. They were choice spirits, not wicked men. General Washington and all the men that labored for that purpose were inspired of the Lord. Can there be any question about the spiritual caliber of these men? Even historians understood there was something unique and special about these founding fathers. Barbara Tuckman, one such historian, noted, it would be invaluable if we could know what produced this burst of talent from a base of only two and a half million inhabitants. But we do know what produced this burst of talent. It was not a series of random bursts or genetic aberrations. Rather, it was pursuant to God's master plan for America. The Bible tells us in Acts 17.26, God hath determined the times before appointed, meaning when we would come to the earth, and the bounds of their habitation, meaning where we would be born. In other words, God directed when and where the founding fathers would be born. F.W. Borum, a Baptist minister, gave some profound insights on how God places the right people at the right place at the right time 
to direct and influence the destiny of nations. He said, in 1809, men were following with bated breath the march of Napoleon and waiting with feverish impatience for the latest news of the wars. And all the while, in their own homes, babies were being born. But who could think about babies? Everybody was thinking about battles. In one year lying midway between Trafalgar, he said, and Waterloo, there stole into the world a host of heroes. During that one year, 1809, Gladstone was born in Liverpool, Tennyson at the Summersby Rectory, Oliver Wendell Holmes made his first appearance in Massachusetts, Lincoln drew his first breath at Old Kentucky, music was enriched by the advent of Felix Mendelssohn in Hamburg, but nobody thought of babies. Everybody was thinking of battles. Yet which of the battles of 1809 meddled more than the babies of 1809. Then he concluded, we fancy that God can only manage his world by big battalions abroad, while all the while he is doing it by beautiful babies at home. When a wrong wants writing, or a work wants doing, or a truth wants preaching, or a continent wants opening, God sends a baby into the world to do it. And so it was with the founding fathers. God, them sent, God sent them forth in a specified time and place to fulfill their divinely appointed mission. And what was that mission? It was to form a government that would establish our God-given rights, including freedom of speech and religion, so we could become a nation under God, not a nation without God. The Declaration of Independence sets forth our God-given rights. But in and of itself, the Declaration was not sufficient. We needed a document that would not just define those rights, but also protect them, hence the Constitution. In the Kirtland dedicatory prayer, we read this tribute to the Constitution. May those principles which were so honorably and nobly defended, namely the Constitution of our land by our fathers, be established forever. Note the wording, the Constitution was not to be dismantled or reconstituted, but to be established forever. Joseph Smith loved the Constitution. He said, the Constitution of the United States is a glorious standard. It is founded on the wisdom of God. It is a heavenly banner. On another occasion, he said, I am the greatest advocate of the Constitution of the U.S. there is on the earth. President Ezra Taft Benson, former cabinet member to President Eisenhower, bore testimony of its divine nature. He said, I reverence the Constitution of the United States as a sacred document. To me, the words are akin to the revelations of God, for God has placed his stamp of approval on the Constitution of the land. President George Albert Smith was in a concurrence. The Constitution of the United States is just as much from our Heavenly Father as the Ten Commandments. No wonder President David O. McKay instructed members of the church, next to being one and worshiping God, there is nothing in this world upon which the church should be more united than upholding and defending the Constitution of the United States. Is there any doubt about how God's prophets felt and do feel about the Constitution? Lincoln was, was so enamored with the Constitution that he wrote, let the Constitution be preached from the pulpit, 
proclaimed in legislative halls and enforced in courts of justice, and in short, let it become the political religion of the nation. William Gladstone, a former British Prime Minister, observed the American Constitution is the most wonderful work ever struck off at a given time by the brain and purpose of man. Alexis de Tocqueville, one of the foremost authorities in America's Constitution and its underlying history noted, the Constitution of the United States is the most perfect federal constitution that ever existed. And James Madison, the father of the Constitution, recognized and acknowledged that it was not the work of man alone. He said, it is impossible for the man of pious re reflection not to perceive in it, meaning the Constitution, a finger of that almighty hand, which has been so frequently and signally extended to our relief in the critical stages of the revolution. While the Founding Fathers studied ideas from earlier national charters and profound philosophical thinkers, the Constitution was not just a patchwork of ideas from such charters or thinkers. James and Madison spoke of the uniqueness of this document in the entirety of all world history. He said, the Founding Fathers reared the fabrics of government which have no model on the face of the globe. Alexis de Tocqueville was in full accord. No great democratic republic has hitherto existed in the world. The United States affords the first example of the kind. Who then were these founding fathers that produced such a remarkable document? Were they heroes or some claim villains? Ted Stewart, a federal judge and author, put this question in its proper light, which I love. He said, today it is common to criticize the founders of America. Judging them by today's standards of equality and justice, they do fall, fail. Some owned slaves, none fought to give women equal rights. Most were wealthy white men. Yes, judging the founders by today's standard of equality and justice, they do fail. But there is just one problem with judging them by today's standards, and it is this. But for these imperfect founders and the sacrifices that they made and the instruments of government which they created, there would be no current enlightened standards of equality and justice by which to judge them. <laughs> judge Stewart is so right. The reason the critics can freely criticize, protest, vote for change, run for office, and exercise freedom of religion or irreligion as they choose is for one reason, and one reason only, because the Founding Fathers made it so. We are part of the greatest democracy the world has ever known. Now, some I know struggle with the word de democracy rather than republic. But the word democracy is used frequently to describe our form of government and is defined in Webster's Dictionary as a system of government by the whole people or all the eligible members of a state, typically through elected representatives. Consistent with this latter and broader definition, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote his historic two-volume series on America under the title, Democracy in America. Well, if unwilling to acknowledge the Founding Fathers' inspired and timely contribution to our democratic republic, one must wonder, do the critics believe that our liberties came about by chance or that they were spawned by evil men? If so, how do they reconcile such a position with the unerring logic of the Savior who said, 
A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. It seems somewhat hypocritical to partake of and enjoy the good fruits of liberty on one hand, while on the other hand, criticizing the very tree that produced that fruit, namely the Founding Fathers. Some might argue that even without our Founding Fathers, our democratic republic would have eventually evolved and therefore they did nothing special. But history would not be kind to such a proposition. At the time of our Founders' noble experiment, there was nothing like it in the world. For centuries, even millennia of recorded history, there was no comparable republic that had the breadth of liberties, separation of powers, and enduring stability of what they created. Greece and Rome certainly had elements of democracy, but not nearly the extent of liberties proposed by the Constitution. The world was and has been filled with kings and queens and tyrants and dictators and Caesars and aristocracies. But what nation was truly governed by we, the people? None, absolutely none. Eric Metaxas, the New York Times best-selling author, wrote of the Constitution, it was a singular moment in the history of the world. We so take self-governance for granted in our time that it's almost impossible for us to behold the utter foreignness of it in its day to see the astonishing and startling nature of its birth in history. It's an undeniable fact that the founders established our democratic republic. Therefore, the burden proof rests upon the critics to prove that there would have been a similar democracy without them. In truth, their assertion is nothing more than a speculative possibility without any historical precedent to advance their case. Despite the overwhelming evidence that the Constitution is an inspired document, it will be saved by men and women who will subscribe to and abide the principles of the Constitution. Hopefully, this includes reference to you and to me. As inspired as the Constitution is, the Founding Fathers repeatedly declared that it could not exist as a viable document unless first and foremost there existed and this is important, a moral people. But who determines what is moral? A professor, a politician, a judge, a social activist, the so-called enlightened few? So there would be no question about that answer. The Founding Fathers responded in remarkable unison and clarity. Morality, they said, was to be determined solely by learning and living the will of God. Jefferson wrote, whatever is to be our destiny, wisdom as well as duty dictates that we should acquiesce in the will of him who it is to give and take away. He then added, Jesus's moral laws are the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has been ever offered to man. Washington concurred, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God to obey His will. And James Wilson, who signed both the Declaration of Independence and Constitution and later became one of the justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, wrote, having thus stated the question, what is the efficient cause of moral obligation? I give this answer, the will of God. This is the supreme law, His just and full right 
of imposing laws and our duty in obeying them are the sources of our moral obligations. This is consistent with the Sermon on the Mount where the Savior said, thy will, referring to the Father's will, be done in earth as it is in heaven. And why is it so important to know and to live God's will? Lincoln gave the answer, those who fight against the purposes of the Almighty will not succeed. They always have been. They always will be beaten. As a result, the Founding Fathers understood the critical nexus between morality, meaning God's will on one hand, and religion on the other. John Adams observed and warned, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our constitution, he said, was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. George Washington was in full accord. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Statements to this effect by the Founding Fathers are literally legion in number. In fact, so universal was this understanding that the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously declared in 1992 in the case of the Church of Holy Trinity versus United States, and I quote, from the discovery of this continent to the present hour, there is a single voice making this affirmation we find everywhere a clear recognition of the same truth. This is a Christian nation. This was further substantiated by the majority opinion written by Justice William O. Douglas in the U.S. Supreme Court of Zorak versus Clausen in 1952 concerning whether or not a public school might provide an early release option for its students to attend religious training. Quote, we are a religious people, the Supreme Court said, whose institutions presuppose a supreme being. When the state encourages religious instruction or cooperates with religious authorities by adjusting the schedule of public events to sectarian needs, it follows the best of our traditions, for it then respects the religious nature of our people and accommodates the public service to their spiritual needs. De Tocqueville recognized this historical fact. He said, it must never be forgotten that religion gave birth to Anglo-American society. The Americans combined the notions of Christianity and of liberty so intimately in their minds that it is impossible to make them conceive the one without the other. He then went on to make this insightful observation, De Tocqueville. In order that society should exist and should prosper, it is required that all the minds of the citizens should be rallied and held together by certain predominant ideas. And this cannot be the case unless each of them sometimes draws his opinions from the common source. And what was the common source of the Founding Fathers? It was God's will as expressed in the Christian religion. But what becomes the common source if every man is his own God? Every man his own repository of so-called rel relative moral truth. There is none, and thus no common basis for a unified society. 
The Founding Fathers readily acknowledged that this country was based on Christian principles, principles which allowed non-Christian religions, even atheists, to have full freedom and expression of their beliefs. Suppose, on the other hand, for a moment, the reverse was the case, and America had been founded in a non-Christian or atheistic country. Would Christians have full freedom of religion and speech as they now enjoy? One need only look at one's right to freedom of religion and speech in such countries in the world to know the answer to that question. This brings us back to the fundamental question, why do the Founding Fathers reference the need for religion as well as morals? Because the Founding Fathers knew that religion, specifically Christianity, was the best catalyst for fostering a moral people. They knew that religion was the prime source for people to learn and live God's law, the perfect moral law. Perhaps Alexander Hamilton stated it most succinctly when he said, morality must fall without religion. But one might ask, do we have any empirical evidence that religion does indeed foster moral values as envisioned by the Founding Fathers? Arthur Brooks, a well-known professor of business and government policy, wrote a candid, fact-filled book on who gives for charitable purposes and renders community service. After referring to substantial national and international data sets, he concluded, religious people are far more charitable with their time and money than secularists. Religious people are more generous in informal ways as well, such as giving blood, giving money to family members and behaving honestly. Brooks then made this candid confession about his own life, which adds substantial weight to his conclusions. He said, I confess the prejudices of my past here to emphasize that my findings, many of which appear conservative and support a religious, hardworking, family-oriented lifestyle, are faithful to the best available evidence and contrary to my political and cultural roots. Indeed, the irresistible pull of empirical evidence is what changed the way I see the world. But Arthur Brooks was not alone in his assessment. Timothy Carney, author and commentator editor at the Washington Examiner wrote, from time to time the media will trumpet some study finding some malady among the religious. They're angrier or stupider or greedier. But ask almost any social scientist, left or right, religious or secular, and he or she will tell you with high confidence that religious people are better off socially and economically and to fall into few neg fewer negative behaviors, crime, teenage pregnancy, drug abuse, suicide, and the like, than non-religious people. Popular culture, he says, likes to paint the dark picture of religion in America, but the actual data point the other way. And Harvard School of Public Health which conducted a recent study concluded similarly, I quote, consistent with prior literature, our results suggest associations of frequent religious participation in adolescence with greater subsequent psychological well-being, character strengths, and lower risks of mental illness and severe health behaviors. What society would not want these virtues, particularly for the benefit of its youth? Justice Antonin Scalia summarized it well when he said, 
The founders believed morality was essential to the well-being of the Republic and that religion was the best way to foster morality. If one does not believe the foregoing effects of religion or morality, he or she might reflect upon the alternative, secularism, a precursor of atheism, and recall that it was the communist atheists who enslaved their people and committed more than 100 million genocides during the 20th century alone in Russia, China, and Indochina. Despite this undeniable historical fact, we have those today who want to replace God and religion with atheism and secularism. William Penn saw the dire consequences of such an approach. He said, if we will not be governed by God, we must be governed by tyrants. It is no surprise that King Messiah taught that freedom without religion was illusory. And under his Christ's head ye are made free, and there is no other head whereby ye can be made free. The Lord declared, the, declared this same truth to the Jaredites. Behold, this is a choice land, and whatsoever nation shall possess it shall be free from bondage and from captivity and from all other nations under heaven, if they will but serve the God of the land, who is Jesus Christ. A great truth was taught. As a nation's faith in Jesus Christ increases, our liberty increases. Some years ago, Harvard professor Clayton Christensen had a profoundly insightful conversation with a Marxist economist from China who was in Boston on a Fulbright scholarship. He asked the economist if he had learned anything that was surprising or unexpected while in the U.S. He replied without hesitation, yes. I had no idea how critical religion is to the functioning of democracy. Democracy works, in this great thought, democracy works because most people, most of the time, voluntarily choose to obey the law. He then added that Americans follow the rules because they had come to believe that they weren't just accountable to society, they were accountable to God. That, I add, was part of the genius of the Founding Fathers. They understood human nature and knew that internal desires to obey God's will were much more powerful than external mandates to obey government rules. Consistent with this observation, Professor Christensen then expressed concern over what would happen to our democracy if religion were diminished in America and people no longer voluntarily chose to obey the law. He then offered this tragic conclusion. If you take away religion, you cannot hire enough police. The Founding Fathers understood this principle. The more the morality and religion, the less the need for government interference and compulsory enforcement, and thus, the greater our agency and liberties. I would ask you this question. How much looting, rioting, and crime would there be if people truly understand that they were not just accountable to the laws of society, which may or may not be enforced, but to the moral laws of God, which will absolutely be enforced at a certain day of reckoning? That is why the laws of society need to be grounded in the moral laws of God.
There are two disciplines underlying society's enforcement of laws, moral and legal. But the former is far superior to the latter. Why? Because government by morality for forces, focuses on our internal nature. The, on the other hand, governance by legality focuses on our external behavior. And it is the former morality that expedites our pursuit of a Christ-like life and thus a more celestial-like society. It seems that many of our political leaders today are striking at the leaves rather than the roots of society's problems. They attempt to solve sexual immorality with abortion, drug addiction with safe injection sites, crime by lessening or removing the consequences, and economic downturns with more debt. But all the while, their, their purported solutions exacerbate rather than solve the problems at hand. In truth, the real solution lies in strengthening the family and fostering a belief in God and his moral values. If we honor God and live his moral values, then the natural consequences will be less abortions, less drugs, less crime, less threat, and greater prosperity. Samuel Adams expressed it so succinctly when he said, the religion and public liberty of a people are intimately connected. Their interests are interwoven. They cannot subsist separately, and therefore they rise and fall together. Since religion is indeed the best vehicle to encourage the living of God's moral laws, the Founding Fathers demonstrated by their words and actions that religion in general should be encouraged in the public as well as private sector, provided there was no establishment of a national religion. Based on the rationale in the Supreme Court case of Town of Greece versus Galloway decided in 2014, the court ruled that freedom of religion can best be defined and understood, determined under the Constitution, if we can discover the original intent of the Founding Fathers on that subject, as evidenced by their, quote, historical practices and understandings. This seems reasonable, as who would know better the intent of the First Amendment having to do with freedom of religion than the very men who debated and drafted its language? What then were the feelings of the Founding Fathers and their practices concerning the need for religion in the public sector? First, religion in public education. The Northwest Ordinance, which regulated the Western expansion of the United States, was ratified in 1789 by the same Congress that adopted the Constitution. It stated, religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. Benjamin Rush, the founding father, wrote, the only foundation for a useful education in the republic is to be laid in religion. And Governor Morris, another founding father, penned, religion is the only solid basis of good morals. Therefore, education should teach the precepts of religion and the duties of man towards God. What did the founding fathers see should be encouraged and taught in schools? Religion and morality. Consistent with this thinking, it was most interesting for me to note that in the year 1787, the same year the Constitution was written, 
Yale University gave these instructions to its incoming students, and I quote, all the scholars are required to live a religious and blameless life according to the rules of God's word, diligently reading the holy scriptures, that fountain of divine light and truth, and constantly attending all the duties of religion. I doubt that's given to the incoming students today. <laughs> How far afield we've now strayed from the Founding Fathers' original understanding of what an education should be based upon, namely morality and religion. Second, religion and government. John Jay, a founding father and first chief justice of the US Supreme Court noted, it is the duty of all wise, free, and virtuous governments to do what? To countenance and encourage virtue and religion. Joseph Story, a Harvard law professor and member of the US Supreme Court for 33 years, wrote the famous commentaries on the Constitution of the U.S. In doing so, he came to this conclusion. It yet remains a problem to be solved in human affairs whether any free government can be permanent where the public worship of God and the support of religion constitute no part of the policy or duty of the state in any assignable shape. And Alexis de Tocqueville added, the first duty, which is at this time imposed upon those who direct our affairs, meaning our government officials, is to educate the democracy to warm its faith, if that be possible, to purify its morals. Third, religion and public monuments. Numerous public monuments sanctioned and paid for by the government make, make reference to God. For example, Lincoln's second inaugural address Engraved on the wall of the Lincoln Memorial mentions God 14 times and references the Bible four times. Does that sound like a government that wanted to remove references to God in the Bible from the public domain? Fourth, religious prayer in the public sector. Prayer has been the focus of numerous presidential breakfasts and the traditional beginning of each United States congressional se session offered by a clergyman Paid by whom? The federal government. All of which was initiated and sanctioned by whom? The founding fathers themselves. Fifth, religion and government pronouncements and activities. Our currency contains the words, in God we trust. Our national anthem makes reference to God. Our pledge of allegiance acknowledges that we are one nation under God. The Supreme Court begins each session with these words, God save the United States and this honorable court. All of these evidence God's encouragement of religion in the public scene. But sixth and most surprising to me, religion is practiced by Thomas Jefferson in the public sector. Thomas Jefferson is often quoted by the secularists for his statement about a quote, wall of separation between church and state, a statement often taken out of context. Jefferson was responding to a letter from the Danbury Baptists who were concerned that the free exercise of religion clause might be interpreted as a government granted right and thus subject to man's change or compromise rather than a God given right that cannot be rightfully or changed or compromised by man under any circumstance. Based on this concern, Jefferson replied that the free exercise of religion 
clause was a restoration of man's natural rights, meaning a right that pre-existed government, a God-given right. Accordingly, Jefferson assured the concerned Baptist that there was a wall preventing government from intruding into this God-given right, namely freedom of religion, provided there was no establishment of a national religion. In other words, government was not to prohibit the free exercise of religion in the public sector, with one exception. There was to be no establishment of a national religion. This is the exact opposite of how, of, of how many have interpreted this phrase. In fact, consistent with this interpretation, Jefferson wrote on another occasion this clarifying statement. Certainly no power to prescribe, meaning prohibit, any religious exercise or assume authority in religious discipline has been delegated to the federal government. It must then rest with the states. What a difference from how Jefferson is often quoted. Furthermore, if actions speak louder than words, and Jefferson's actions should evidence his true opinion on the role of religion in the public sector. In his second inaugural address, he invited the audience to join with him in supplications to God for the nation's well-being. Was this not encouragement of prayer, a practice at the heart of religion made from the nation's preeminent public pulpit? And why did he, along with Franklin, if they were opposed to the expression of religion in the public sector, propose a national seal with these words, God or Providence has favored our undertaking, knowing that such seal would become a public symbol? In addition, Jefferson, as well as James Madison, attended church services where? Of all places, in the Capitol building one of the most visible of all government buildings. If this were not enough to evidence Jefferson's feelings about the interdependency between religion and government, Jefferson authorized federal funds for Christian missionaries to preach the gospel to Native Americans. These actions clearly condoned religious worship in public settings and the use of government money for religious purposes. Nonetheless, the courts, courts have quoted Jefferson's one-off phrase out of context in order to prohibit religious instruction, prayers, and the reading of Bible in schools, to remove displays of the Ten Commandments from public buildings, and to out public, outlaw public displays of a Christmas crash. No wonder that, that Supreme Court Justice William Rehnquist opined the wall of separation between church and state is a metaphor based on bad history, a metaphor which has proved useless as a guide to judging. It should be frankly and explicitly abandoned. To those who respond, but it's been quoted in judicial decisions, Rehnquist noted, no amount of repetition of historical errors in judicial opinions can make those errors true. In addition, no such phrase appears anywhere in the Constitution or any of its drafts. Furthermore, such an interpretation is contrary to the vast preponderance, if not all the writings, of the Founding Fathers on this subject, a small portion of which has been discussed tonight. Our nation's history is saturated with references to God because his influence has been profound in the discovery establishment and preservation of this country. Accordingly, we pay tribute to God through the presence of religious symbols 
and practices in both private and public settings. It is nothing less than historical fiction to think that our government did not support and encourage religion for our nation's first 200 years. The initial intent of the Founding Fathers was clear, to promote and encourage religion in both the private and public sectors, and by so doing, reinforce the moral principles upon which our nation was built, but at the same time, never establish a national religion. Our Founding Fathers, I think, would be shocked to hear some advocate that religion should be expressed only in the confines of one's home or the seclusion of a private chapel, that it should be absent in the public domain. It would be anathema to them and all they stood for and preached. Religion to them was the prime source for reinforcing the moral values essential to the ongoing viability of the Constitution. They knew that without religion and morality, the Constitution could not and would not endure. I do love our Constitution and its inspired principles. I honor and respect our Founding Fathers, who literally put their lives and reputations on the line to establish and preserve the liberties we so abundantly enjoy. I revere the American flag and the ideals for which it stands. It is our modern day title of liberty. I cherish the times I can pledge allegiance or sing the Star Spangled Banner. There is a sacred spirit that accompanies these symbols and activities. Why? Because they are divinely inspired. I acknowledge and express gratitude to God for his merciful hand in the origin, establishment, and destiny of America. His fingerprints are literally everywhere. It is now our choice and America's choice to continue the legacy of our founding fathers or to cast it aside, to be a nation under God or without God. May we courageously and vigorously sustain and defend the Constitution. Then we will be entitled to this wonderful promise of the psalmist. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, who is indeed the God of this land, amen. amen. <laughs>